Welcome to the Cedar and Porch Real Estate Investment Podcast. I'm the host, Shona Lepis. Follow along as we unpack and demystify real estate investment strategies through expert interviews and personal experience. From how to find off-market deals to creative financing to long-term and mid-term rentals. Our goal is to educate and inspire others to gain financial freedom and generational wealth through real estate investing. I'm super excited to have John Robinson on from John Buys Houses. He's a true go-giver and a super active member of the Portland real estate community. He started the PDX REI group, a free monthly meetup that provides a ton of value and inspiration with guest speakers and great networking. I recently had the opportunity to speak about midterm rentals. It was super fun. So if you're in the Portland area, it's definitely worth checking out. So John, I'd love to hear about your entrepreneurial journey from contractor and how you and your wife transformed your family's construction company into a thriving real estate investing business specializing in creative deal structuring. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Shana. And uh, I, I definitely want to say if anybody has a chance to check out Shana's midterm rental course, uh, they absolutely should. I After Shona came and uh, after you actually spoke at our meetup, I went out and I purchased it and uh, my 17 year old daughter and I are actually going through the course modules right now. So we're having a blast. In fact, I just told her this morning, I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to be talking to Shona today and I want to be able to give her a good report. So you better make sure you're keeping up with those modules. So <laughs> thank you for providing that, uh, that course. And thank you for providing the opportunity to sit down and chat for a few minutes. I, I definitely, uh, am like you know i think i might have mentioned like kind of a serial entrepreneur so <laughs> i've been you know whether i didn't even know was I, I was an entrepreneur for a long time i guess i was just kind of a handyman construction guy you know have truck have tools you know will work and um you know over the that's pretty much how i paid my bills most of my life and um kind of over the years realizing that there's uh, you know, there's better ways to do things, you know, learning more about actual business structure and real estate, you know, and just kind of stumbling into the world of real estate uh, has has opened my mind up to what it means to be an entrepreneur and what it means to be in real estate, you know, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm super happy to be here this morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I feel like, um, yeah, I think entrepreneur sounds like this a little fancy, right? But I think right. you just, <laughs> you kind of have the bug, right? Or you don't. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's awesome. So I, I'd love to hear more about kind of like how you went from the handyman uh, construction guy to like a full-fledged business and, and that journey yeah. and how you got there. No, thank you. Um, so, you know, I grew up in a construction household. So my my dad built um, residential homes down in the Eugene Springfield area when I was growing up. And um, in 2000, my family, my entire family moved to Alaska and we, we got to Alaska and my dad actually began doing some projects. There was a there was a lady who her and her husband had uh, developed a bunch of residential lots. They were building out a subdivision in phases, spec homes. And a spec home being a speculative sale, it's, it wasn't a pre-sold house. It was a speculative build. You build it and then hope someone will come buy it. Well, they had finished out the phase one and then her husband passed away. So, so this lady had all these basically developed lots. And my dad worked out a deal with her to where he would 
we would basically come in and we would buy, she would subordinate the lot to us. So she would take um, second position on the uh, ownership or on the deed. We would be in first position, which would allow us to get bank financing to build the house. And so we actually built out, uh, we didn't know it at the time for a while. We were one of the largest builders in the Fairbanks, Alaska area. We just were, mm -hmm. you know, local mom and pop business, my dad and my brothers and my, really the whole family was uh, involved. But um, so I kind of developed from, from just growing up in the construction industry. My wife also comes from a family of builders. They did, um, her family did kind of a higher end custom home jobs and in, um, in the Boise Treasure Valley area, of Idaho. And so we, we were just kind of like, that was our thing. That's what we did. And um, then when 2008 happened, I was down in Florida. I was actually training for ministry and uh, had my own handyman business, you know, again, truck, tools, experience, know-how. And uh, then the market shifted, of course, 2007, 2008. And we were, I was left without work. I couldn't, I couldn't find a job. Then back then in the construction industry, especially down in Florida, Florida got hit exceptionally hard. And construction, um, you know, you just, there just was no work. There was nothing at all that that you could do to get a job. I would literally drive up to job sites and I would tell guys, hey, I've got my tools. I'll go to work right now. I'll work for two or three days for free, you know, just so you can show show you I can do what I can do. I just want to, I need, I need work. Nobody was hiring. Um, everything was up in the air. And so we actually ended up getting into a, uh, a situation where we got behind on our mortgage payments. Uh, at this time, we were in our fourth house. We had been built, we'd built a new house. We'd lived in it for two years, kind of, uh, my dad had encouraged us to roll that equity over to the next project, you know, so the capital gains, if you live in it for two years, you can avoid, you know, uh, the tax whenever you sell. So we had done that and we were in our fourth, uh, I think it was our fourth, might've been our fifth house, uh, only married for, you know, about eight, eight years at the time. And uh, we, we basically got behind a uh, whole new world, right? All of a sudden, all that equity that we had was now negative. We had no equity. Um, we went from, I think about $85,000 of equity, which was a lot for you know, a young couple uh, in those days to, uh, to negative equity. I think we were about $30,000 under value in what we could sell it for. And so I had been doing some work for a realtor, did a lot of punch list stuff for a realtor. Um, in the area and what ended up happening when he when when he heard about what i was in the situation i was in he came and said john let me help you out let me you know let me work a short sale for for you and i had no idea what a short sale was but i just said hey if you can help us you know from not going to foreclosure <laughs> i'll take it right yeah so it was really nice too because it was a guy that i worked for so i i, I knew that he, you know he was in real estate and i knew that you know i trusted him so um, he actually negotiated with the bank, worked out a short sale for us. And so, um, you know, I graduated from school around the same time, you know, with a, a bachelor's degree in divinity and, you know, a bunch of debt. And for the first time since we've been together, we are now in a, um, we, we, we didn't have a home because we've been living basically in our own house since we first got married. So we are now, you know, kind of nomadic renters you know, would be renters. I didn't even know if we could get a place because our, our credit was all shot to pieces. Um, you know, we had a bunch of debt um, and we kind of limped our way up to the Seattle area. I had a buddy who I found out was building houses in that downturn market in the Seattle area. 
And all I knew is, you know, I didn't know how he was doing it. Wasn't really that savvy on real estate back then, um, but it was about 2009. We made it into Seattle and started building houses. Uh, basically, my buddy's dad hired me as a superintendent for his construction business. And so we were doing ground up construction from literally from foundation up. We did everything um, that didn't require a license. So we subbed out the plumbing, subbed out electrical, but we did everything, uh, framing, roofing, you know, cabinetry, flooring, really just everything uh, so that we could have as much work as possible. And what I found out as I was there was that even though the market was still pretty, you know, collapsed, the, what my buddy's dad had done was he had actually found kind of a niche in buying. Uh, he was buying repossessed bank-owned lots, uh, developed lots from different banks in the Seattle area. So he was going in and negotiating basically, you know, really, really good uh, deals for, for developed lots. So they were, it wasn't, you know, full land. It was actually individual developed lots. The builders had gone under, the banks had come and taken the property back. So, the, you know, you, the street already had the, the, the plumbing and the water and the electrical, everything was piped in right there to the lot. And so with my experience in construction, it's kind of a perfect deal. We were... <clears throat> We were building these houses, and typically they were getting sold to people that were working at Microsoft uh, up there. And we were selling these properties. They were typically selling before we were even done, you know, with this drywall. Oh. And um, yeah, and that was back. That was back in 2009, 2010. And uh, even back then, I, I couldn't believe. I was just blown away by the prices that they were getting. They were selling these houses for four hundred seventy-five, five hundred twenty-five thousand dollars for you know a three-bedroom, two and a half bath, you know, twenty-five hundred square foot house. And I had just experienced you know, a total collapse of the market where I was. You know, there's no work, real estate. Nobody wanted real estate. And so I came to Seattle. What maybe realizes there's like a the different markets that you're in can really affect like the Seattle area, even though it took a hit, it didn't, you know, have suffer as badly as other areas of the country did because you had so much industry there. You had the tech mm -hmm. industry, Microsoft, you know, and, and just the Amazon and all the different people that were there. So um, it, it, that kind of, that was probably one of the first times that I remember like kind of my mind kind of leaning toward, oh, so, so he's like a real estate investor. Okay. You know, I didn't get it. But yeah. I just knew that I was working and that he was making money. And so I was happy. <laughs> it was kind of a crazy time too. I mean, it was really, you just took whatever you could get. But what happened was from there is we ended up down, coming down to Portland um, because I had trained for ministry and that was, what I felt was kind of my calling. And I had really been, you know, just looking into coming back to Oregon. So uh, I came down here and we kind of just started um, you know, a, a local Bible study and, you know, eventually it turned into a church of which I'm still the pastor. But all along the way, I was obviously putting my construction skills to use uh, to pay the bills. And I found myself in the Portland area doing jobs for uh, what turned out to be investors. So I was doing, you know, remodel jobs for investors. I was doing, you know, kind of a little bit of everything. And um, the more I was around these these guys and realized what they were doing, um, and it also helped that by by then I was in my you know early to mid thirties, so I was actually my brain was actually starting to develop. <laughs> you kind of, you know for for guys it's like they have this you know this aha moment you know it's like our brains turn on sometime in our mid thirties. So 
uh, I was, you know, I was kind of realizing like, man, I, you know, I don't want to keep doing just swinging a hammer for the rest of my life. You know, what are these guys doing? You know, so I started looking around and um, that led, you know, I'm cutting out a lot of stuff, but that led us to, uh, we were renting out in Scapoose, Oregon, and um, we were uh, living on an old farm property that, that was owned by a developer. And um, we were, I had talked to him about, you know, maybe, you know, working out some kind of a deal with him where, cause I knew eventually it was going to be split up into city lots. And I was kind of talking to him about maybe I could, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying to say, maybe swing a deal or, Hey, I can do some work for you out here in exchange for, you know, uh, you know, give me one of these lots. Cause I was remembering back what we did in Fairbanks. Maybe you can give me a lot and I can build a house for my family and we can be homeowners again. Well, that never really went anywhere, but it kind of got my mind thinking about stuff. And um, I had come across a podcast, actually, um, by a guy out of Florida who is a, a real estate guy. His name is Phil Pustiofsky. He had a, a thing called the Freedom Mentorship. He has been on, you know, he's, he's kind of like an old school real estate investor. Mm -hmm. One of the first ones that was actually on the internet, on YouTube, put stuff out there. And um, he had mentioned how some of the best deals that you can ever come across are when people are in a crisis situation. And, and he was talking about it from the point of view of like, you know, if you can provide help to people that are in need, then it's also oftentimes beneficial. And so I literally had just seen or watched this podcast or listened to it or something. And the next day I went to um, a, a Craigslist ad. I was looking at a Craigslist thing because there was an old car that my dad was interested in. He had me go look at it. And while I was there, I was talking to this lady that um, she was crying and, and she was, you know, probably in her, I don't know, mid to late sixties. And so I was asking her if everything's okay. And, um, and she basically told me, you know, that she was there, she was from Astoria, but she was there in Beaverton at this house because she had to meet the sheriff because they had to serve an eviction notice to her brother because her brother who had always lived with mom at the house was refusing to move out of the house after mom had passed away. And mom had left this only thing she could leave to the four kids, you know, all, you know, in their sixties and above was this piece of property. And so the kids were all wanting to sell it, but the brother wouldn't move out and blah, blah, blah. And it's like my little, you know, all of a sudden I just remember like, this is like a crisis situation, right? <laughs> like this is, this is what that guy was talking about on the show I was listening to. And so I just asked her, I said, well, what are you, what are you wanting to do? You're going to sell the house. Do you, do you, are you going to try to fix it up or you know, would you sell it, you know, to someone to let them fix it up? And she was like, yeah, we would love to, you know, my husband and I are driving down here every weekend. We, you know, we're having to get my brother out. I would love to just sell it and be done with it. And um, it turned out that she was like the executor of the estate. She was, you know, stuck with dealing with all that. And so what I did, I had no idea. Right. And so this is, you know, kind of, if I could give any first lessons or helps here, you know, mm -hmm. take massive imperfect action, even if you don't know what you're doing, you know, that was, that was basically one of the, how I got propelled into this whole world was at the time, all I wanted to do was be a homeowner again. I just wanted to have my own house for my family. And I, I didn't like renting. And, um, and so I was thinking, well, this is my opportunity, right? I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm just going to, I'm going to ask her if she would, you know, take an offer. And I said, you know, would you, at the time, I think it was probably like the, the market value. This is what it was. It was just about 2013, I think. 
the market was just now starting to come back around this area. And um, I said, well, would you take, you know, would you take 170,000? I think I said like $150,000. This house needed a lot of work. And, it, but it was probably worth, I think it was probably worth every bit of it at the time, you know, 250, um, even in that market. Great ideal location, old town, Beaverton, right downtown by the park and, you know, the library and everything. But um, I said, would you take this? And she goes, oh, I don't know about that. I have to run that through my realtor. And so I was like, okay, you know, well, that's what people do this. So, so I got an email from a realtor a couple of days later said, Hey, you know, they talked about it. They would take 170 if you could do that. And I was just like, well, you know, that's a good deal. Right. So, cause I knew it was worth 250. Right. I had no concept of like, how much is it going to money is it actually going to take to get this thing up to where we where we want to live it. <laughs> it was a total wreck, all original, everything. It was just a dump wow. track everywhere. You know, the typical scene. Mm -hmm. But in, in my mind, I was like, I have a deal, right? I have, this is my chance. And so uh, I, I went, I did what, what everybody does, right? I went to, to a lender. I, you know, I found out if I was pre-qualified for a loan. I gave them the house. You know, I actually ended up getting a, um, the realtor sent over uh, an agreement. I signed it that we were now in contract with the closing date, you know, pending financing. And so we went about the whole entire process right up to about a, a two weeks away from closing. Um, I got a call from the bank saying, Hey, this property, we sent, you know, somebody out there for an insurance, you know, check on the property or whatever. And they said, this, this property is, is not insurable. Like there's, there's no way we're going to finance on this property is basically what they told me. And I, and I was just blown away. Like, what do you mean you're not going to finance? Like, you know, I, I got to buy this house, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> You're and so <laughs> you know what I mean like I, we just didn't know anything we, we were just trying to do everything the way we've always done it you know yeah ever, right so um so my wife was talking to and this is this is kind of how we got into the real estate investing world my wife is talking to her mother about you know just having a conversation she goes yeah it looks like we're not gonna be able to buy that house and why not well it looks like the bank's not going to finance it and you know we're really disappointed and um, and my wife's mom said, well, I know someone who, um, who could probably help. So like, how long do you think it would take to fix it? And how long do you think before you guys could actually get it, like refinance and pay this person back? And we were just like, my wife's telling me this. I'm like, uh, well, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a contractor. Right. So I said, oh, we could, we could have it done in three months, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I'm thinking to myself, like how, what, what was that? Long story short, she, my wife's mother knew someone who had the capital to be able to basically loan us the money cash to be able to complete the purchase as agreed. And so we went from a bank financing um, deal to, we did an addendum. We, we came in, we said, we're going to close with cash. Um, literally we had money in the bank to make the purchase, um, you know, the day before closing we purchased it. It's now fully in our name. We, we now owe this, this lender $170,000 plus, you know, I think at the time they charged us, you know, 10% interest and we had to have it paid back, you know, in six months. And I was just like, you know, like, Oh, okay, well let's get to work. So I went over there with my, my boys were younger at the time. We went over there, started ripping carpets out on the day of closing, you know, just tore into it and, and got into it and basically realized like this house was like ton of work. So Long story short, we scraped together some other money. We we got the thing, you know, fixed up. We're fully intending to refinance it, pay this loan back. 
And um, we're there working one night and a lady comes and knocks on the door and she has a story about how her daughter is, is, uh, has some special needs and this school there, Beaverton High School, had some programs that would be that she's been trying to get into that school, but she needed to live in that area. So she asked us basically if we'd sell the house to her. And we were just like, we're not, no, we're, this is us, you know, this is our house. And, and she said, well, I, I'd be, you know, prepared to, to pay $300,000 for it. And, you know, at the time, I just thought to myself, like, that's an incredible amount of money. Like, I just couldn't believe that she was just, you know. So I talked to my wife and we both agreed like, you know, hey, as much as we would love to have this house, you know, it'd be, that's a, that's a really great payday for the amount of work we put into this and time. And so we said, yes, we sold it to her. And that's what I call my, my accidental flip. We didn't mean to, but we flipped the house and that's how we got into this. And that's, you know, the rest of it, as they say, is history. So that's kind of how we started from the beginning, you know, to, to where we are now, or at least got into the, the world of real estate investing from from there. I, I love that in so many levels. Like I love that you're, you just took the massive action, right? Cause I think we get into the analysis paralysis and we don't know how to, don't know how to solve the puzzle or get the funding, but like you jumped in and I love that your first deal was, I mean, creative finance. <laughs> and the whole thing is like all the things in one house. Like if you can figure that out, like that's amazing. And you help people along the way too, which is yeah. mean, right, amazing. Well, no, only what I know now too about that situation, like they would have, they would have really been hard pressed. I probably overpaid from a cash investor's point of view. I probably paid too much, um, mm -hmm. but, but they would have had a really, really difficult time selling the house. Cause even back then the market was still not quite, you know, up to what, it, what it's been. So uh, anyway, I, I feel like I really helped them. It made life easier for them. They got, you know, a big chunk of money, 170 grand split four ways, you know, so that they were all happy. Um, but, but that was really kind of what propelled us into, like, it was, it wasn't until we actually closed on that deal. We had our money back, our lender was paid back. And all of a sudden we're sitting there and I'm looking at, um, and so at the time, kind of a little thing, I had taken a job working out at Intel for one of the contractors. I was doing, um, some QAR stuff, quality assurance rep for, with the contractor side of Intel's tool install. And, you know, I had a, you know, it was basically, a, you know, I think it's 60, $65,000 a year salary. And I'm looking at this, this check we just made from, you know, five months worth of work. And I, you know, I'm looking at this going like, I just, I just made almost twice as much on this one project as I have the entire year's salary working at Intel. And so that's kind of what all of a sudden is like another little light bulb, you know, bing, like, wait a second, if I did this two times a year, I'd be, you know, I'd be set for life, you know, so that's, that was kind of, you know, really what triggered my curiosity into learning more about flipping. So. So from there, did you just decide like, Hey, this, this makes sense to start flipping or wh where did you go from there after that? Yeah. So I was literally, I was working at the Aloha Intel campus at the time. And my mind is now like fully racing into like trying to figure out how to find another property like this, you know, like, and so um, I, I was walking around the campus at lunchtime and I looked across the street and there's a real estate broker's office and they had something on the sign about, you know, foreclosure properties. So I literally walked across TV highway, you know, went in their front office and said, I want to talk to somebody about foreclosures. <laughs> so again, taking massive action, I had no idea, you know, what I was even asking, but I just thought, well, foreclosures, that's, you know, there's a crisis situation. I, I know what that was like because I almost went into foreclosure. 
And so, um, you know, I, they brought me on an agent and sat down and started talking. I, I'm really, really thankful uh, today. I've, I still do business and deals with, with that agent. Uh, his name is Eddie Chinez, but um, he's, you know, he's turned out to be somebody that I've done a lot of deals with. And um, the thing about that, you know, talking to a, an investor, I didn't know it at the time, but I was, I was sitting with and talking to an investor friendly real estate agent. So someone who understands, you know, what the mindset of an investor, what they're looking for. And so he literally immediately told me about a deal that was out in Cornelius. And um, <laughs> this, I mean, looking back on it now, as I'm thinking about it, it's like some of the stuff that I did is so crazy. It's like, I, I can't believe I did it. Right. So I had this chunk of money. I had like 180,000 in the bank, right. From, from this, this sale. Um, and, and of course that, that was, recovering what we had spent on the house too. It wasn't all profit, but I still had this chunk of money. And I'm, so I'm sitting at this, you know, 180 grand in the bank, something like that. And I'm looking now, I'm looking for all these properties. And I find this one and it's, you know, it's we're coming up on the end of the year. It's about this time of year in December, mid to late December. And it was a bank owned property. It was, um, it was a manufactured home, but it was on a foundation, had a, a garage addition and it was on its own lot. And so he just kind of shows me the numbers and says, hey, you know, well, how much did you spend on that other project? Well, look at this. We went, look, look at it. It needs paint. It needs basically like switch, swap out the cabinet hardware, put in new flooring, and it's back on the market. And so I'm looking at this, and I, and so I told him to make an offer, and, and I said, make this offer. And it was a total lowball offer. Like, like he was embarrassed to do it, even though he was investor friendly. <laughs> so... So he, he makes this lowball offer to the bank. And, and my thought is, you know, that's how much money I have. I think I offered like 160 and they were asking like 230 or something like that. I offered 160 because I knew I had 180 in the bank, right? And, and he's thinking like, he's like, John, there's no way they're going to take that. Well, at the same time, I'm like cruising around the internet. And so I'm looking and I'm on hubzoo.com. I don't know if you ever checked that out, but I know. Mm -hmm. um, hubzoo.com h-u-b-z-u.com uh, it's kind of like a almost like an auction.com site so they they um, auction off um, properties like it's like a broker site for a bank owned properties so i'm on hubzoo.com i'm looking at this little duplex that is in really bad shape but it's just right down the street from from the office of intel and so i go there and look at it one day and you know you know walk around look in the windows i'm like oh, i can fix this you know, and so I like, I go back to my office at Intel and I click on the little thing and I make a bid on the, the, the duplex on their auction. You know, it's like, it's got two days left. And so, uh, lo and behold, I went, I'm the winning bidder for, for that property and the, the bank owned property in Cornelius accepts my offer at the same time. So, <laughs> and and I'm, and I'm, I'm proving that I have, you know, the, the funds to close for both by sending them screenshots of my bank account. But I'm like, I only have enough money to buy one of these. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just like, okay, well, what do I do? And I'm just, you know, again, these kind of problems have always just, you know, my mindset is like, let's figure it out. Right. So I'm now looking at this, I'm the winning bidder on this auction. I got to close like in, you know, 10 days or something. And I'm also the, uh, the, they, this other bank takes my um, bid for a property, takes my uh, offer. So, and both of them are good deals. So that was kind of what propelled me into finding a hard money lender. 
And um, I, I basically just started looking, you know, cash lenders, you know, Googled it and talked to a guy named Randy Witherspoon. If, um, and I know there's a lot of, I, love, I know a lot more of them now, but I've, I've done several deals with Randy Witherspoon. Uh, the thing I like about Randy is every single deal I've ever worked with him on, he's always closed. He's not, um, sometimes with hard money lenders, they, they commit to closing, but then, you know, right before closing, they either change the terms and this is not everybody, but uh, they'll change the terms or they'll say, Hey, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're actually not comfortable loaning on this property at this price, or we'll only loan, you know, 60% of the purchase price, not, not 75 like we had thought. So, um, Randy Witherspoon helped me get the financing together to close on the Cornelius property. I used my own cash to purchase the duplex. And then I used the little bit of cash I had left to, first of all, finish the Cornelius property, got it, um, got it flipped and back on the market, made about $60,000 from that profit. Um, and then took that profit and put it back into the duplex, got the duplex fixed up, then got a loan to refinance and pull my cash back out, put renters in that. And this, by now I'm just like, I'm eating up everything I can about real estate. I'm just, you know, I'm just like consuming it because it's just, you know, I'm realizing not only is this really intriguing and fascinating, but I'm, I'm making, you know, way more money than I've ever made in my life. Now I will say this. I didn't, I'm not like a big spender type of person. Like I didn't go, we, we basically just took every bit of profit and we put it into another property. We just constantly were putting, so our lifestyle didn't change. You know, we didn't buy Ferraris or, you know, you know, start going on lavish vacations or anything, really nothing about our lifestyle changed. We just got really busy working and we just were taking every single bit of money we made and putting it back into other properties or, the other thing that I did was I, I invested in education. So that was one thing I really, uh, I spent a pretty decent amount of money learning, but I felt like that was my cost of tuition, so to speak. You know, you don't go to college to learn about real estate investing, you know, but but you you can rack up a college-like bill by <laughs> investing in education. But I think most most of my educational purchases have been well worth it. So I agree. I mean, I... I have never done so many courses in my life before I got into real estate. <laughs> right. Like I didn't, I was fairly self-taught. Like I can figure things out, like, but real estate, it's so creative and there's so many strategies. And I think to do it well, it's well worth it. And it, the ROI yeah. on it is undisputable. Right. And just yeah. having a mentor because, um, yeah, no, hundred percent. Like I did not know I was such a course junkie until I got into this industry. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, I love that you just kind of jumped in um, and learned as you went. And I think I also, you know, I think for newer investors, like if you find, and that people would tell me that if you find the right deal, you'll figure out the funding if you, if you jump yes. into it. And I think that's, it's, you just have to take that. I mean, you have to be smart and, and run your numbers, right? But I think that it's very intimidating if you haven't done any deals. Um, yes. Try Right. Um, so like a couple of things to unpack. One thing I feel like, again, kind of thinking I'm a newer full-time investor and what I've struggled with that I know other people struggle with is like running your numbers and knowing how to do a rehab budget. And I, you know, I think ideally you can bring a contractor over, but sometimes you don't have one. Is there any tips on like how to evaluate a property for a rehab budget? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that holds up a lot of people and uh, frankly, I, I know it sounds crazy, but it's not nearly as um, as complicated as it may seem. 
do I have an advantage because I've been in, you know, construction? Of course, like, you know, it, it'd be like me, you know, like you, you can look at a room or a design or, you know, interior decor type of stuff, and you're going to automatically know more about it than I will just because you've been around it. And that's just kind of been more of your passion. So like every one of us has our thing that we're, you know, probably better at or more proficient than other people. But for, for me, I have found that my numbers, uh, I am relying more and more on just this, the quick, easy calculation, at least initially than I am on, you know, running through all of my, you know, my repertoire of, you know, projects and experience. Like it's crazy how close these numbers can come out. So um, if you have, I got my little, my phone calculator here. I'll just show you, you know, what something that I did really recently on a property that hopefully today I'll be signing a contract with uh, the, the seller. But um, we, we went up and looked at a property. I, I took someone from the PDXRI group and we, we met at, at a property on a lead that I come in. And I looked at the property. The property was 980 square feet. So if you have the calculator and you're watching it at home or whatever, just type in 980 square feet. And then I, I used a multiplier of 55, no, I'm sorry, $60 a square foot. So I said 980 square feet times $60 uh, per, per square foot. And that came out to a total of 58,000, rounded up, call it 60,000, okay? But the point is, at that $60 a square foot price, that, that's what I figured is my, for, is for the total upstairs on that property, which is, it's, it is sitting on a seller. So in this case, I actually did another multiplier for some work downstairs. But, um, but I, I used that multiplier to figure out what, what I think total from the upstairs, you know, from the floor. So that's new flooring, that's replacing the old windows, that's, you know, um, painting, that's new appliances, that's new kitchen. I figured my cost as a contractor is going to be about $60 a square foot. And, and that was for a, it, it wasn't like a total teardown house. It was what I would call as kind of like your medium grade. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're taking notes, I think if you use a multiplier, uh, uh, what I call your A, B, and C grade multiplier. So A grade would be probably, you know, it needs paint, interior paint. You know, it might have, you know, a couple, like a little hole in the wall or the doorknob, you know, punched a hole through the sheet of rock. You know, if you take some of the little tiny things, just the basics, right? You could probably count on uh, spending about $30 a square foot, 30 to 35. Again, this is not science, right? Mm -hmm. But 30 to 35 bucks a square foot is what the contractor's cost is going to be, Okay. If you, if you have like more of a B grade where it's kind of medium grade property, it really needs, you know, uh, you know, more work. It needs new flooring. It needs, you know, probably new appliances. You know, it's, it's questionable whether or not we're going to be able to, you know, re keep, are we going to, are we going to put in new vanities in the bathroom? Right. So if you just take like, it's not like a full roof tear off, you know, the siding replacement, but it just, you know, it's more than just a little light lipstick on the pig, so to speak, type of renovation. Yeah. But it's but it's not like a full, like we're gonna go in and just gut this entire thing and start, you know, we're not replacing plumbing pipes and electrical wiring and everything. If you go, if you go about $60 a square foot, that's that's a pretty safe number to, to look at from a contractor's perspective. And I'll 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 tell you in a minute why I say from a contractor's perspective. 
if you have like a full gut and we're literally just going to leave the shell and start over again, you want to figure on spending about 85 to $90 a square per foot. So if I took that same house, 980 square feet, let's just say we were totally gutting it and starting over again. If we go 85 bucks, that's an $83,000 renovation from, from my point of view as a contractor. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason I say from a contractor's point of view is because remember, depending on which contractor you hire, they're going to have different ways of, of charging or making a profit. So in other words, if, if I'm doing this, then I just know those are my costs, right? Now, if I somehow or another am able to come in under that budget, well, then good for me. Maybe I'm able to, as a contractor, maybe I'm able to reuse some paint from another project that I've been keeping in storage. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to have to spend that X amount of money. So I can start whittling down that budget and trying to make, make more money as a contractor on that bid. But the, the point is from a homeowner or from an investor's point of view, from kind of the person who's going to pay the contractor, if you figure, you know, 35, 50 to 55 to 60, 85 to 90, those three price points are going to be really, really close to what you would expect a contractor is going to have to charge. So like if I'm doing this as a contractor and I'm going to charge 83, or I know it's going to cost $83,000 most contractors are going to want to try to make at least 15 to 20% profit from a general contractor's point of view. Mm-hmm. So if you figure on the high side, 20% profit, there's a $16,600 profit on that $83,000 bid. Mm-hmm. So we added in that 83,000, there's, you know, total cost is coming in $99,000, right? So that contractor might charge $100,000 for the remodel but he's going to make $16,000 of profit. It's going to cost him about 83,000 to do it. And you know, that that's how, that's how a lot of these numbers work. Now I, I completely understand there's people that will argue with, you know, you know, that's not the way we do it. Blah, blah, blah. I, I get it. I'm just saying, I like to be able to walk into that house and with my phone in hand and knowing these, those three numbers, I like to be able to look at this house and say, I'm going to, I'm going to spend, $83,000 getting this property up to snuff. Okay. Or I'm going to spend $60,000. And I, and where did I get that number? I got it based off of just those three multipliers, 35, you can say 55, you know, just keep it easy. 35, 55, 85. Right. Um, but, but those are numbers that I use and I, I have done this enough times now where I can say this, I have seen my actual numbers after the project is complete see my numbers come in and I'm like usually within five to $10,000, you know, give or take. So those numbers are very, very close. And if you keep that in mind, just use that as your multiplier, you can walk into any project or any property, or even you'd like to walk into it, right? Just, you know, you're talking to the seller. Hey, what's the condition of the home? Would you say it's an A, B or C grade? You know, A grade meaning it needs some paint. B grade needs it, needs, it needs to be pretty much fully updated, needs new flooring, needs new paint, probably new cabinets in the bathrooms, uh, or is it C grade? Is it like, like this place really, you know, needs to be kind of gutted? Most people will be pretty, pretty honest, you know, they're, you know, I mean, whatever they say, you can figure it's a little worse than that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. buyers are liars and sellers are worse, right, is the, is the saying, but um <laughs> But you can go on the phone, if I'm looking at Zillow and I've got this property full up in front of me and I know it's, you know, it's 1200 square feet and it's a 1200 square foot house. And I know that they're telling me it basically needs paint. And, and maybe I even have some Zillow pictures from, you know, a previous listing or from a rental and I can see, yeah, it's, you know, it's not in bad shape. It needs to be painted. Well, I just plug in that 35 bucks a square foot 
I know that's a $42,000, you know, bill to get that thing up to snuff. And so those, those are what I, that's what, those are the numbers that I use. And then if I'm going to actually put together a, a, a like an actual written offer and we're really going to, to close on this thing, we built up the rapport. They want to work with me. Now I'll give myself that 10 day inspection period to bring in my subcontractors to bring in, you know, anybody that I need, I, I need to get an actual precise dollar amount. And I might find out that, you know, boy, you know, after I had everybody look at it and they pointed this out or, or I went in there and did the inspection and we found out that, you know, we've got the, the, all the, the floor joists around the toilet are all rotted out because it's been leaking for five years, right? That's going to be an additional cost. So now I'm going to start getting specific numbers based on, you know, and adding it to my $35 square foot multiplier. Does that make sense? That that simplified a pain point that it's it's so because I think the way I was approaching is like okay you know a kitchen is this and then I'm getting into like how much countertops and it just gets that's yeah. so great it's so simple. <laughs> you'll you'll find I mean I, if you if you do I don't even know if you have um, some projects that you've kept track on it which you know we're, we're all like some people are really really good at that stuff other people not so much I'm probably one of the not so much people but. Um, if you have, if you go, if you can go through a project and actually really keep tight records on everything you spent on it, uh, renovation wise, and then you go back and actually compare it to just using the multiplier, you'll find that the, the numbers are really close. I mean, they're within, they're definitely close enough to be able to figure out what you should kind of be counting on as a budget. And if you're worried about it, then just add, you know, add another 10, 15% on top of that. Because you you know you're always going to go over budget, right? That's the that's the number one rule. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, <laughs> I I've done enough you know staging. We've we've only staged a couple of short term rental houses, but I know like if I'm my and my wife is kind of helping with this, but if we know we're going to be staging a three bedroom, two bath, you know, fifteen hundred square foot house, we know like you know if we're going to Costco and we're trying to, but we're but we're using like you know we're buying everything brand new, right? we know we're going to spend probably 15 to $20,000. You know what I mean? That's, mm -hmm. that's just, that's the, that's again, for the way we like to stage it, for, but we've, we've, we've done enough of these to know, like it's going to, if it's this size house, it's going to cost anywhere from 15 to 20 grand. And, and so, you know, someone else will come in. I know whenever you gave your presentation, like you're, you're finding a little stuff here and kind of, you got, you know, you're kind of piecemealing all together we're more like, let's just go in and we're going to spend two days at shop at Costco and Ikea and we're going to get everything in one shot, put it all in the credit card, right? So that's how we approach it. But in other words, after you do enough of these, you realize there's kind of a, there's kind of a dollar amount. There's a figure that kind of keeps resurfacing or is at least in that range. And that's how it is with these numbers, 35, 55 to 60, 85 to 90, you're going to be really close based on what kind of condition it's in. And then use your inspection period when they accept your offer to, to really, if you have like some questions about some very specific part of it, like I need to, I know it needs a new roof. We'll get, you know, two or three bids from roofers. We'd be amazed at uh, how much that can vary, mm -hmm. um, you know, as you know. But um, I've had, I've had roofers that have, uh, roof bids that have come in because um, I don't do my own roofs anymore. Um, but I've had roof bids come in anywhere from $20,000 uh, down to eight thousand dollars for this for the same roof, same house, same product, and um, 
you know, depending on how hungry a, a contractor is out there, you know, and, and maybe he's just got trying to fill a, a gap to keep his crews busy. I think that's something that people forget about construction is, you know, construct a contractor has, you know, five to 10 guys working for him um, and they're doing a good job. He wants to keep them busy. So sometimes they'll take the lowest bid doesn't always mean that it's going to be poor quality work. It might just be that they're trying to plug a gap or fill something in. They just want to, they're just going to take this job just to keep their crews busy so that they can, you know, bridge the gap from this good paying job to the next good paying job. We're going to use this one in between as a filler. We'll, we'll bid it low just to keep everybody busy, you know, that kind of thing. So, but that's kind of getting into the, some of the weeds of, you know, the contractor stuff from a, from an investor point of view or from someone who's new starting out, or even someone who's got a lot of experience. I think those, those three price points, A, B and C grade price points, um, will will get you at least close enough to where you can feel comfortable knowing what your budget should be, and then add a little extra on there if you're if you're you know if you feel like it needs more. So that's really helpful. I think it's something that especially when you're new, you get really caught up because that really affects your margin, right? If you underestimate, Huge. you could not make any. It's a profitless spread or it's negative, yep. right? So that really segues into my next what I think pain point is like when you're making an offer, right, you're looking at the after repair value and your budget. So do you have like a formula similar to that when you're making offers on a house that you're, you know, you're going to flip or wholesale? Yeah, I, I'm probably not a formula guy as much as, um, as some people are. And, and that is because, um, pr probably because after several years of doing this, I realized that, you know, you're, your numbers very rarely work out as far as the overall. It's kind of like, you know, ARV is is speculative. Mm -hmm. um, I just finished one, you know, I should have finished it in August, I mean, in July, but I actually didn't end up getting it really finished until September. Well, the difference of the ARV from July or, you know, June, July to September, <laughs> at one point I was at 600,000, I ended up selling for 530. So we had a $70,000 difference. And that was for a finished product on the market, you know, with a realtor. I mean, that, so it just goes to show you some of these things can be really speculative. I think for me, when I'm looking at a flip project, um, I have, first of all, I've changed my personal, um, I've done enough flips and projects out away from home that I've kind of, this beginning of this year. So I finished up a project out in Cascade Locks. Uh, right at the end of last year for for another investor, actually. I, I wholesaled it to him and then he hired me to basically do the construction part of the project. Um, I, I I vowed a vow that I would not do any more flips, you know, past 15 minutes from my office. So um, we just got so sick of that drive. But um, I think so for me, I'm looking at close to home, right? That's what mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really, so again, my, my formula would be totally different than someone else's because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm all about proximity these days. Mm -hmm. Like, I just want to know how far is it from my office, from my house, how far am I going to have to drive? Um, and then with gas prices doing what they did, you know, I'm really glad I, I kind of put that into action because <laughs> at the same time I had the one going in Cascade Locks, I had another one going on up in uh, Klatskenai. So I was literally you know, an hour and 15 minutes, you know, south or east on uh, to Cascade Locks. And then at the same time, going an hour and 15 minutes, the opposite direction up north. And it just, you know, it burned me out bad. So, um, but I, I look at it and say, if, if I can make, if I can personally, after I'm all said and done, if I can make 
I'm, I'm going to be pretty happy. And I say 15%, I mean, 15% of the ARV. Mm-hmm. So after repair value. So mm-hmm. if it's a $360,000 house, when it's all said and done, and we're going to put it out there for that, I want to be able to make that 15%. And I just, that's, so that's one number I kind of try to plug in up front. Mm-hmm. I want to try to make, you know, $54,000. Now, would I do this job and and do the the deal even if I knew I wasn't going to make fifty four thousand? I'm only going to make forty eight thousand, probably. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But that's just my that's I have a number in mind that I use fifteen percent. A lot of people will go higher than that, depending on if they're doing like one or two projects a year or if they're doing fifteen projects a year, right? So you have your the, the reason I say it's hard with formulas is because. Depending on your volume, that number can vary greatly. You know, um, mo- there's guys that will they'll go for you know eight to ten percent, you know, minimal margins, uh, but they also know they're going to do twenty projects in a year. And there's people out there, even in the Portland market, that are doing that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, their their margin is going to be different than mine. My margin is basically I just want to see. I want to make sure that when I'm all said and done with this, after I've paid my lenders, after I've paid my contract you know all recouped all my costs of construction after i paid my realtor fees my closing costs after i've done with everything i want to see myself sitting on top of you know fifty thousand dollars if i'm going to be selling it at 360 mm-hmm. so that that number kind of helps me start figuring out how to basically reverse engineer what my offer needs to be okay. so i'm sure that's that's probably pretty typical for most investors but um, I, I didn't come up with that number early on. I just, over the years, I've kind of realized like that's, that seems to be the price point that I'm comfortable with. But, but like I said, I mean, I know some people they'll go into a flip and they'll, they'll do it and they won't make anything or maybe they'll make five, $10,000. And I'm not saying that's advisable, but if you're getting started in this business and you can actually get a flip done and make five to $10,000 and have all the experience of having done a project yourself from A to Z, that's a win to me. You know what I mean? That's huge. Especially people coming at it with, without the construction background that I have or without, you know, a lot of real estate experience to me, that's a win all day long, you know? And I think people kind of get discouraged by not having this huge chunk of money well, don't forget, you might not have a huge chunk of money, but you might have a huge chunk of experience and, and knowledge now about something that you can use to go out and make money or even be an asset to someone else's business. So kind of all depends on what you're trying to get out of it, right? Yeah, for sure. And I know that like hard money lenders, they want you to have that experience under your belt. They're, they're, the yep. interest rates are going to be higher because you're way riskier, right? If you've never done a flip, you yep. can really could screw it up or who knows right well you think about too sometimes you'll see these posts from um from some of the you know the new investors i see them sometimes in the pdx rei group and and they're like hey you know it's you know our first flip right we're going to market and and it's and they have the before and after picture and it's like man that's that's awesome you know you guys did it you know look at here's here's what it was before i now have proof this is what it was like when i bought it this is what i'm selling and so you know it gives you credibility it gives you the Mm -hmm. you know Hey, I did this, you know, and so there's there's more to this than just the money in the bank. And I and I really want to encourage people if you're getting into this and starting out, you know, it's not always about the big payday. It 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 might really be a lot about the experience and the cost of the experience and what it, you know if you can break even or make a little bit of money, 
and you were able to do it. I mean, most people, they're never even going to get past HGTV, right? You know, so, and and now here you're like, I flipped a house, you know what I mean? Look at this. And we even made enough money to go out and buy a nice steak dinner and, you know, and, you know, have Christmas money. So, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just all depends on what you're trying to get out of it. True. There's so many intangibles and it is, there is a magic when you can take a house and you're improving the neighborhood, you help someone out. And it is, I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. Like I love it, no. oh, man. Sometimes I'm like, what am I know? doing? <laughs> it's just like when you find out there's actually no sewer line, you need to put a sewer in and the, you yes. know, the septic didn't work. You know, those kind of things yep. like, there's remuneration no, I- for that. <laughs> and, and it's and it's it's like those are the kind of things that just make you go like either your reaction is either i'm never doing this again which i have certainly felt that way on some projects mm-hmm. um but if you can get past that then the, then the reaction eventually is like i'm never gonna buy a house again without doing a sewer scope inspection <laughs> you know what i mean you just you kind of, you're, it's the cost of learning right it's just one of those things that you know it depends on what you're into it for if you're just like well, i'm gonna dabble i'm gonna dip my toe in it I mean, I would tell people if you're going to dip your toe in real estate investing, don't get into flipping. You know, flipping is, is like you said, not for the faint of heart. It's, it's, you got to be committed to it. It's going to be a minimum six month job, you know, commitment. That's if everything goes well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it can be, there's exceptions to that, but I just figure, figure six months of your life, you're going to be basically waking, eating, sleeping, dreaming about this project. And, um, there was, a, there was a young guy that was actually from our church that was really kind of entrepreneurial. And he um, he was in his early 20s and he was just like begging me. He's like, hey, I want to get into this. And so I actually wholesaled a deal to him and, and I walked him through it. But uh, man, he got about two, three months into it after the demo work was done. And after, you know, you're just out there every day. It's like, whew, this is, this is not <laughs> funny. Right. Yeah, it, you can get burned out on this stuff really easily, especially if you're doing everything yourself. So it's it's hard. Yeah. And I think also my experience, you know, I've done a couple of flips at this point and, you know, finding the right contractor and their sense of urgency and my sense of urgency yes. don't always match up. Yep. <laughs> the last one, I kind of played a little bit of the GC hat. I brought my own subs in and I could kind of play cat herder. And yep. that was very satisfying to like move Good. those along. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, that's another thing, you know, again, talking about taking massive action or being uncomfortable, you know, you don't, most people don't realize that they can actually GC general contractor. They can be the overall general contractor on the project and just find those different subs. And I, you know, as a, as a tip to folks, you know, that might be thinking about doing that, um, you know, always try to get at least three different price points, three different bids, even if it's just a text message bid, but at least get some kind of an idea of what the price point's going to be from three different contractors. And then um, also, uh, you know, have, have those conversations that you may not feel comfortable having, have them up front, right? It's better to have an upfront conversation than it is to, to have it after you're disappointed with the, with the schedule or the timeline or the product, the quality product. Um, I just had one, you know, and I've been in this for my entire life and I just had a project I'm working on setting up as a short-term rental and, you know, I had the painters come in and they gave me a really good price and it was for three projects and I got through the first one that they did. And I'm like, I'm not using these guys again. They're just, they're horrible. There's overspray on everything. They didn't mask off well. Um, you know, so, but, but at the same time, I'm now I'm sitting there going, you know, I can't be upset at them. I did not 
typical, or I did not qualify what kind of uh, product that I was really hoping to get out of this, you know, their work. Like they basically came in, they blasted, they're moving on to the next one. I was, I was the one who didn't set the expectation up front, you know? And so you learn after a while, like the upfront expectations are super important. And so I'm not going to go chasing after this guy and, and get him to scrape up every little drop of paint whenever I didn't, you know, no, should he do a better job? Yes. Will I use him again? No, but I'm not going to be mad at anybody because it's like, well, I, I didn't set an upfront expectation. So, and, and really think about this, when you don't set upfront expectations, you are setting up upfront expectations. <laughs> you're, you're setting up an expectation of, you know, eh, whatever, you know, just get it done. Yeah. And some projects that works, other projects that doesn't work. So you just have to kind of learn, how, you know, how to, how to do that upfront. No, for sure. And I, I found too, that when you are flipping, at least in my experience, there's a, the, um, there's a much higher standard held to flippers versus a home seller. Like if, yes. if you're flipping a property, you, you cannot have anything amiss. Nope. Anything. Nope. <laughs> yeah. And, and we really shouldn't too. I mean, we're trying to offer, you know, we're, we're trying to offer something out there that's going to be a finished product for somebody. And we're going to, you know, potentially hopefully make, you know, a decent amount of money on it. I, I don't, I don't advocate and I don't like the fact that there are flippers who just try to cut every corner they can. And, mm -hmm. and, and just to make, to maximize their profit and minimize their expense. I don't, I don't think that's a good reflection on, on what kind of service we can and value we can provide. Mm -hmm. But I, but I do know that that's, that's actually fairly um, predominant in, in this industry. And so we're trying to try to do things differently, try to be things, you know, be the different type of person that's doing this work. But uh, again, if you're going to be that, then you have to set those expectations up front, you know, or we have to be willing to go back and pay to have a job done twice if it, to meet our expectations. So I, I think, again, all that is part of the learning, right? Is as you do more of these projects, you kind of learn what to say up front and, you know, how to talk to my subcontractors, what kind of questions to ask them. So you say you can get this thing done in two weeks. Now, does that mean two weeks from today it'll be done? Or does that mean the total amount of time that you will spend working on this project is two weeks spread out over the next month and a half? You see what I mean? Yeah, right. Very good point, right? So that's, you know, we just, you learn those things by just being in this and realizing, he said it was going to be two weeks, but it's been a month and a half. And the guy's like, well, I didn't say I was going to be done in two weeks. I just said it would take me two weeks to get it done. You know, I got other projects to do too. Don't you know that? You know, so that, you know, and he's thinking one thing, and I understand this because I was a contractor, as a subcontractor, I, you know, I, I learned, we're all seeing things from our perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And so try to, think about like how is he going to look at this or how is this subcontractor going to be looking at this and when they say this do they mean what i think it means and it's, it's totally fine to ask those questions and if you find a, a subcontractor or some a carpenter or somebody that doesn't like you asking questions well again now you probably know this isn't something i really want to work with you know yeah that's a flag uh, so i have to ask you know if you're working with someone new i've come across this before like deposit right like i i'd rather go kind of as the work is completed but how do you structure if you've never worked with the contract i usually want a pretty hefty amount up front but then to me it's like i'd rather pay as i go kind of in a draw style i'm curious how yeah. you approach that yeah i would say it probably depends on the scope of work that they're doing um and then also what um what level of experience or references that they bring with them like if they're referred to me by somebody else who I know is using them and I, and I like 
they're actively involved in business with them. And this person asks for a deposit, you know, well, it's pretty typical for a contractor to ask for a deposit, um, especially it has been the last several, um, uh, the last several years. And part of the reason that's been the case has been because of um, everyone's so busy, right? So it's like, if you want to actually ask me to commit to your project, then I'm really going to need you to put down a deposit because I know I could get work from somebody else. So if you mm -hmm. put down a deposit, now I know you're serious. But, but as far as just generally speaking, like if it's a couple thousand bucks, you know, and they, and they want a 50% deposit, you know, I might look at it and say, well, you know, if it's for painting this bathroom or doing this simple thing, you know, you get in there and I see what you've got going by the end of the day, you know, I'll, I'll bring you half the money. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, you know, if, if you have a contractor who needs to have 50% or 30%, if they need to have that in order to start the project, that probably means that they don't have their own funds or resources. They don't have a credit line with, you know, with the uh, Sherman Williams, or they don't have a business, you know, uh, professional account at Home Depot or whatever. And so they're literally going like cash in hand to go do the project. Well, this is, if you're dealing with someone who's in that kind of category, it probably because the reason you're even dealing with them is probably because they were one of the cheaper contractors or bids that you got, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're getting a, a price point on a, on a project that's more, you know, a little bit medium or higher end, most of those contractors aren't going to require, they don't need that money to, to go out and buy the material. They just need that money to secure their place and, and to secure your job and their schedule. Mm -hmm. And for them, it's like, you know, it's 10%, 15% deposit. It just says, okay, you're serious. We're serious. And there's a whole contract that's involved and there's signatures signed and there's references given, you know, and, and that kind of, there's usually like an office. If it's just kind of a, you know, one man and a truck and tools like I was for a number of years mm -hmm. and, and he's asking for 50% up front, well, that probably means he doesn't really have much of an operation going on. And so what I used to do is I used to say, hey, listen, I know you're not comfortable, um, you know, from the contractor's point of view. I say, I, I know you're not comfortable. You don't know me and you're not comfortable just giving me money. And I wouldn't want you to do that. But I also know that you don't expect me to just buy all the materials for your job without any no way of knowing if you're going to pay me. So here's what we'll do. You, I'll go down to Home Depot or I'll go down to Sherman Williams. I'll get everything on what they call will call. I'll get it all, all you know, the, the right products picked out with a, with a total. And then I'm going to have them call you and you pay over the phone for the material. Then I'm going to come and I'm going to install it or I'm going to apply it. I'm going to do the work with it. But that way I'm not dipping into my pocket as a contractor. If I'm just, if it's a small job and I'm just kind of a one man show, you know, it's, it's hard to expect a guy to, to pay for your, basically your materials with his money and then hope that he gets paid. So I, I know that's kind of a long way of answering the question, but I'd say each, each situation probably varies. And the more familiar you are with somebody, obviously the more you might feel comfortable giving them some money up front. But um, if they're, if it's like a big full blown remodel, you know, and it's a GC that's doing it or a contractor's doing a lot of different phases, they will probably have a deposit of some sort required, but it won't be just to cover their expenses. It'll be more just kind of just to say, okay, we've got this this project locked in. We've received the deposit. We know that they're serious about getting this job done. We can now commit our schedule and our resources to this project, partly because we have this deposit in hand. So. 
that makes a ton of sense. I've actually done it both ways where I get the call from Home Depot to pay for supplies, which got yeah. a little old. I was like, all right, let me pull out my credit card. And um, but I well, I'd never worked with the guy, so was and good. so and so to that point, you know, you kind of go, Well, maybe I'll try that for the first couple of times, but then after a while, it's like, well, the guy's proved himself, you know. Mm-hmm. I look at the receipt, he didn't buy himself a new chop saw while he was there, right? <laughs> you know, always after the receipt, by the way. Yeah. Um and and so what I what I found is yeah, it's really annoying to get those calls. So you can you can actually do a couple of different things. And most people don't realize this, but you can actually um, get like a um, uh, basically a project credit card. So you can get it on, if you already have a credit card or you have a Home Depot account or something like that. You can actually mm-hmm. get a card that has like a just a, a general user, and you can maybe give that to them and preload it so it has a set limit of like two or three hundred bucks. So if you have a lot of that kind of stuff going on, you, sometimes it helps to have that, or you can even get like a, have a bookkeeper set up kind of a separate account that's only accessible through that one card mm-hmm. and all the receipts come in. You know, a lot of that gets into your bookkeeping, the way you keep track of records. Um, but for me personally, like I got to the point, I'm with you, like I got, I'm so busy. I don't want to stop, take out my wallet, get out of the card number. What job is this for? And did they get the PO? So I'd rather just give a certain amount of trust to somebody and risk that and save myself some time and headache doing that. Um, you know, and most people are going to be, you know, pretty reputable. There's always going to be somebody that's going to rip you off. Even as a contractor, I've been this for years. I got ripped off by a guy on a glass shower door. He wanted the deposit. I paid him, you know, this $1,500 door. I paid him $750 up front to purchase the glass and never heard from him again, you know. So that happens you know mm-hmm. you you get burned and you realize okay i don't want to do it that way anymore but there's there's you either find a solution or you sell on something uncomfortable with this yeah that's super helpful yeah i i ever i had never worked with this guy and he was kind of new to being on his own so it worked out but it was a lot of receipts and yes so i have to just kind of circle back to you know flipping um in this market and it feels super risky right because that arv is like again like if you bought you know you went to market in august versus october it's right so what are your thoughts on like flipping right now um again for me personally i'm flipping close to home i I will still flip a house if it fits my buy box you know my Mm -hmm. criteria for what i'm looking for you know i'm looking for that 15 percent profit margin um you know again that's based on what i think the arv is going to be but still 15 percent profit i'm looking for it's in it's in my proximity zone um but I still think flipping is, is in this particular area. And I say this area, I mean, literally geographically, specifically, I'm talking about Hillsborough Beaverton is where mm-hmm. I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't say the same about, you know, Southeast Portland or whatever, because I'm not super familiar with those kind of micro markets. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, um, I think the Hillsborough Beaverton corridor, 20, Highway 26, is going to be continued to be built out uh, because of the tech industry. Um, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of folks even here locally don't know about that's going on. It goes all the way up to the federal government level. It has to do with national security and microchips needing to be made in the U.S. And, and Oregon, Western Oregon being one of the few places in the country that can support that type of industry. So um, point being... Like I personally still feel very comfortable flipping and 
in in the in this particular in my area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I get all kinds of leads from all kinds of different properties in Portland, and to me, a property in Portland, it could be a screaming deal. It's just not appealing to me. The rent regulations uh, make it, you know, unappealing. Uh, some of the political stuff makes it unappealing just for a multiplicity of reasons. I personally, now it may be fantastic for someone else. Just for me personally, I'm not, you know, I don't care if it's a hundred thousand dollar property. I'm not going to flip it just because I don't, I don't want to drive down there. I don't want to deal with it. Coming back to here locally and the market here, I think kind of like Seattle was years ago and I was building those houses. I think certain areas are going to still continue to be profitable um, I just think that we really we have to be very very careful on our upfront offer, and make sure that we're we're adjusting our prices as much as possible. I think the typical model of you know, ARV minus seventy percent minus the cost of construction minus the wholesale fee minus the realtor costs minus the lending. I think that seventy percent probably needs to come down. You know, I think that you know for a cash offer, I think it needs to come down um, substantially to be a safe bet. Now, if you're in it for a long-term buy and hold situation, you know, obviously that's a different story. You, you might be able to spread out that difference, you know, um, on what you thought the ARV was going to be compared to what it actually was when you finish it or refinance it. You might be able to spread that out over 30 years. It's a lot different, you know, model. But for flipping, I still think flips are going to do well, especially if they're done well, right? Flips that are done well tend to do well. So if you do a house really, really well, and, and it's, you know, it just, you know, it just has that curb appeal. It has the landscaping. It has everything that everybody wants. There's still a massive demand for housing in our area. Um, and I mean, the entire Northwest really mm-hmm. uh, in the metro areas. So I'm not worried about the market in that sense. I think if it's done well and it stands out, it's going to get sold. I just think we need to be really careful about what we're doing up front on our negotiation. And that, what that means is we're going to probably be getting, you know, as many no's as we always have to our offers. Mm-hmm. You know, you make an offer and it's, you know, no way. I just made an offer uh, last week and I just told them, uh, and I like to spell everything out. I like to be very clear with how I got to my price point. And I'm, I'm getting to the point now where I don't make offers. I make proposals. So I, I have a kind of a walk through over the phone or I'll do like a um, have you, have you seen loom or like screen cast matic yes, Yeah. I love, oh, you do a video of that. Yeah. Oh, so awesome. I do a screen recording video, walking my seller through my screen and I use a calculator and I have the Zillow listing and, and I just kind of spell everything out and, and, you know, and it's personable because it's, you know, there's a little bubble with my face on it, but, um, I, I like to be as clear and upfront as possible and it takes five minutes to run through your just running through how you got to your offer. Now you have to kind of talk fast, but you know, you get five to 10 minutes. You can put together a little screen recording video. You shoot that out to your seller. You know, first of all, it looks professional. It's, you know, it kind of, you know, it's, it's like, it's, there's a connection there. It's not just somebody texts them. I'll give you this much money. So you, but, but you also, you might save yourself a ton of time putting together this full, you know, written up contract, docu signing it, sending it over, if, if they look at my proposal and they're not interested and they're definitely not going to be present interested in, in the legal e of, you know, legalese of my, of my contract. Right. <laughs> so the proposals are a lot easier to send out and they're basically somewhat risk-free, you know, it's mm-hmm. not a commitment. 
Yeah, but at least it tells me what the response is going to be, and it, and, it, and I spell it out as clearly as possible. So I'm totally fine with sending out proposals, even with, and it's a little bit easier to do that, honestly, on a kind of a video recording. It's easier to, to kind of pitch your number to your seller than it is to actually do it in person with them, you know, asking questions back. Not that I'm afraid of having those conversations. It's just that I want to kind of move on to the next thing as quickly as possible. So I've been putting those Loom videos out. Um, it, and, you know, some people are coming back and saying, okay, well, what, what can I ask you about this? Okay. And now we're continuing the conversation, but other people are texting me say, Hey, I watched the video. That's not going to work for me. Completely understand no obligation, no pressure. And then I'll just put them on my follow-up list. I'm going to come back out to them in you know, two weeks a month because two weeks a month from now, it might, their situation might, might have changed, but um, I am adjusting my numbers downward but I'm not worried about it selling on the back end. Mm -hmm. I, that's, that's really original. I think that really allows someone to digest it or not on the spot. And they're really being yes. transparent it just because it sounds like there's this misconception that we make all this money. Yeah, we do make it has, there has to be profit, but there's a lot of expense that there's a ton of expense and a ton of risk, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we're, mm -hmm. you know, I heard someone say years ago, it was actually an old um, world, world war II uh, he was a World War II veteran, and he had, he was actually a minister too. I, I trained. He gave me some training, but I remember him saying one time, "There's two people, two of the biggest gamblers in the world are farmers and contractors." You know, and, you know, because you're spending all this money farming, and you put the seed in the ground, and you hope to get a crop, and hope it doesn't get wiped out by whatever. And then contractors, you know, you a lot, especially speculative, and you know that that fits the model of flipper too. You're mm -hmm. you're doing all this work and spending all this money and taking all these huge risks in hopes of it selling at a certain price point in a certain time frame. And uh, you know, so there has to be there has to be some real consideration given to that. So um, I that's like I said, like unless you're really really comfortable with what you're doing, I don't think flipping is for a good place to start. Um, but I, but I do, I do think that it's, you know, it's, it's still a good way to make money. I just think you have to be very, very careful on your, on your numbers and you have to just get through that project as quickly as possible, get it back on the market as quick as you can. That makes total sense. Really quick. I'm curious when you're doing these looms, is that for a cash offer? Or are you saying, Hey, like if they're free and clear, I mean, are you, how creative are you getting when you're doing those proposals? Um, I mean, I'm going to give away a, you know, a secret, but um, you know, to your audience, but I, I have what I call my three C offer. So every offer that I put out has a cash price point, uh, a conventional listing price point and a creative price point. So I, I typically go, will go through all three of those price points on my kind of my uh, screen with the, you know, with the document open and I kind of show them how I came to each of those price points. And uh, the reason I like doing that is because I, you know, I'm giving a seller options. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if they don't like my cash price, well, maybe they'll like my, you know, my creative price. If they don't like going creative terms, well, maybe they'll like just listing it conventionally but using, you know, one of these flat fee listing services with me kind of making a fee by for managing it for them. So I have to be really careful. I can't represent the seller's interest in a, in a, in a listing option, but I can represent my, at my equitable interest in the property. So a lot of people don't know that you can actually list any property as long as you have equitable interest in it. And uh, meaning you don't have to own it. You can list it on the MLS using flat fee listing service. 
Um, but you have to make it very, very clear that you're representing your equitable interests. You're not representing the owner or the seller. So that's, you know, that might be a different topic for, because we can get into, that's you know, and I, I guarantee you, I know there's realtors out there that will cringe when they hear me say that, but I've literally done it multiple times you know, over the last several years and, and it works. So uh, you just have to make sure you have your, your fee structure uh, done correctly and to where it meets all the requirements of the MLS, you know, servicing company. But, but the point is if I, if I put out three different price points and, and I cover the three major ways to, for a seller to sell a house, then, then they're going to, they're probably going to sell on one of those, right? Mm -hmm. Now I might not make nearly as much money doing, you know, a conventional listing option, um, but I'll at least make enough money to pay for, you know, the, the cost of getting that lead and then maybe a little extra for marketing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like every single one for me has to be a huge win. If I'm doing a flip, you know, kind of creative cash creative option, then yeah, I want to shoot for a 15% margin. But if I'm going to do creative, I'm going to hold on to it or turn it into a short-term or a midterm rental. Or if I'm, uh, um, you know, just do a wraparound mortgage or something you know, like that, lease option, then I don't have to have the same price point. So now I can raise my, I don't have to make the same money. Rather, I can raise my offer price to, to accommodate you know, not necessarily having to get that low cash price point that factors in all the lenders' fees and the cost of construction and everything else. So that's that's kind of where I, I like to have three different options for them, at least three different options. Uh, some people, they don't like any of the options. That's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, but at least I'm giving them three separate price points based on three separate ways to sell the house to me. And I love that. And I think above all, you're being, you're being a resource, right? You're saying, here's your options. It's not just like, I mean, if you call a realtor, they're, they're going to give you like your list price, right? And they might give you a price that's maybe not realistic, right? Because they want to get a lot of realtors. They just want to get that listing. And, 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 I'll, and listen, that's, they've got their thing they're doing and I'm not against them. I'm not opposed to them. You know, I wish they wouldn't be opposed to us, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it, but I just, I just look at it and go, um, you know, if, if you're going to list it with an agent and, and then I always ask them, is that agent guaranteeing you, or you're going to get that price, you know, because, because pretty much every one of my options is going to be a guaranteed price point. And, um, you know, I, the, with the conventional where we're going to actually list it, I, I'm really careful to define what I mean by guarantee. Um, I guarantee they're going to get X amount if it sells at the price that we listed at. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there's a caveat with that one, but otherwise, you know, it's, it's, you know, my cash offer is guaranteed. My conventional offer or my uh, creative option is guaranteed. My, my conventional offer is guaranteed with the caveat of if it sells. The thing I like about going to conventional, uh, that's one of the ones I'm hoping to get signed today is, is that I don't, I don't have any really risk or obligation other than my time invested in it and taking, you know, doing some photography and, and handling showings. You know, other than that, I'm just looking to make a, a flat fee for the basically for a servicing fee. So, and I price it when I go when I do something like that. I price it uh, with a discount already built in. So I, I go on the market with a discount built in, and I and I explain that to the seller. This is why I think if we list it at this price, I think we can still just about guarantee you you're going to make at least this much after all the fees, realtors, and everything else comes out. So. But yeah, I, I like giving people options. 
Yeah, no, and I sometimes I'll even spell out if you were to own or carry it, the amount of interest that you make. I mean, when you yeah. actually run those numbers, it's like it's like you're you're the bank, right? You make that yeah. much. Why give that to the bank? You could. Yep. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I tell the same thing. I said, I I'm going to pay this much money to a lender or to a bank. I'd actually rather pay that to you. So you know, would you rather make this money or would you rather be paid to my lender? <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and it's just like i also i so I have to just that equitable interest is that some kind of a contract the equitable interest thing or is that what is that exactly so equitable interest just to you know from my point of view and again someone else could define it differently but i my point of view equitable interest is any money or any interest that i have in the property that is that is mine so if, for for instance this one that uh we're gonna you know i'm hopefully getting the contract signed today the seller is, I think they're signing um, at, they're signing a contract that allows me to list the property at $265,000 on the market. I have a guarantee that if it sells at 265, the seller will make no less than 235,000. Okay. And, and so 235,000 is what in the seller's mind they're going to take home. And he's actually, he's had this all reviewed with his attorney and his attorney has signed off on it. And, you know, he had a couple of questions, but he's like, yeah, this, I can see how this, this is legitimate. So, but, but so then what that means is equitable interest is any money that I have involved in that difference between the 235 and the 265. So if it's listing at 265 and there's going to be essentially fees for, to pay the realtors, um, you know, the flat fee listing service, then the buyer's agent is going to want to make at least 3%. Mm -hmm. um, we got closing costs involved, right? Uh, there's probably a, I always figure on, there's going to be some kind of a buyer's concession. So the buyer is going to make, you know, a seller's concession rather, you're going to have to concede something to the buyer. And I factor in a percentage there based on what kind of condition the property's in. All those things basically mean that there's a difference between 235 and 265 that that the seller understands is going to get paid, you know, out, you know, through escrow and through closing to different people, different parties. Mm -hmm. Well, my equitable interest is built into there somewhere. So it's either as, you know, as a, a listing fee or my my position, sometimes I'll come in as a contractor, I'll charge like a kind of like a, a you know, property preparation fee to get the property, you know, get the front porch swept up or get some little trash and stuff picked up. So I can actually show I did something that I can now invoice for. Okay. So uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that, actually. And I'm, I'm of the mindset that as long as we're doing it in a way that the, you know, that the seller is open to and understands, and as long as the title company is, you know, understands what's going on, um, then it's, you know, it's, we have contracts signed, we have everything in agreement, then, you know, there's there's a way to make money on listing someone else's property um, as long as I'm very clear that I'm not representing the seller I'm representing my equitable interests I'm going to make money in here somewhere and that's why I'm putting it out there on the market this way I so I, I think I've learned all the strategies and I hear something else across <laughs> it's like I the toolbox is so big in this industry <laughs> That is, it is really interesting. and there's and there's the thing is there's still more to learn like there's no way that anybody's learned it all right that's I just yeah that's why I love it it's so creative well this has been so much fun John I feel like we could talk another couple yeah. of hours that's um, really good <laughs> I'll have to have you back um so a couple questions to, just to kind of like I like to ask guests your a top business or life advice you would give someone 
Yeah, I say top life advice. You know, I think those are two separate categories, although they are connected. So, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, I'm I'm a you know I'm an ordained pastor. I pastor a church, so I obviously have a perspective that's probably unique to me. But um, there's a scripture. It's in the Book of Revelation, chapter four, verse eleven, that essentially says what your what all of our life purpose is. And so I'm I'm a really big advocate of finding your life's purpose. You know, um, and I say that because without having your life's purpose really clearly defined, then you can be wildly successful in business or in all kinds of different things and still never feel satisfied. And so for me, you know, that's obviously really, really critical. It's kind of my priority is, you know, fulfilling my purpose according to, you know, what, what the Bible says I was created for. And, uh, you know, we could, we could spend hours talking about that, but, um, but it's from a business point of view, um, I would say probably my top advice would be pick a thing that you're going to do, whatever that thing is that you're going to do, and and really try to like ratchet down and, and figure out how to do that well. Um, I have been scattered in so many different directions. And once I got in real estate, I mean, I've done land flipping, house flipping, you know, I've flipped an apartment complex. I mean, I've done buy and hold, I've done short-term rental. You know, I'm, I'm now dabbling with midterm rental, right? But I've, I've kind of come full circle around. I, I kind of now realize what I want to do and I want to do it and I want to start doing it really well. And I think with real estate, there's so many different things that you could do that sometimes you get, you're, you're either pulled off in many different directions at the same time or you go to one direction and you bounce to another thing good at any one particular thing. I personally think it would be better to be good one thing that you don't really, you know, as much, because I think you'll probably always have a way of making money at that thing. So, and then learn something new, but, but get a good one, a good at one thing first. Like you're kind of, you know, really rationing down the midterm rental thing, right? It doesn't mean it's the only thing you do, but it means that you're probably going to be an expert or really good in that thing, right? Say so get good at one thing, and I and my other thing is don't go at it alone. You know, get get in with some other people that can help you. So join a group, join a mentorship, really commit to it. Even if you don't like, a, maybe you don't have money for a mentorship, that's totally fine. There's at least one or two people in your area, whether it's somebody in a network, you know, a event or someone else one of these Facebook groups or someone like at our PDXREI group, guarantee you there's at least one or two people that you can connect with and you can be valuable to them in some way, shape or form. And you're going to learn from them. Don't try to do everything yourself. It's just, it's not worth it. it. You'll, you'll, you'll shave so much time off your experience, your journey. If you get connected to somebody or get connected to a group and really just kind of like make that your thing. Right. Because it's, I know for me for a long time, like I did it myself on everything. Number one, because I wanted the experience. Number two, because I, I didn't really feel like I could trust people to, to have my interests at, at heart. And I realized like I don't they don't have to have my interests at heart for me to, to still be able to learn something from them, right? I can come alongside you and we can benefit each other's business. It's not that it's like completely altruistic. Oh, I just want to, I want to help Shona so much. But, you know, here we are, we're having this podcast, we're having this conversation today, and I'm giving you stuff, and, and you've been giving me stuff. And and the point is, like, if I was just like, no way, I don't want anybody else to know about my 3C offer. That's something that's mine. I've, you know, I've, I've mastered that. You know, I'm not going to give that away. 
well, you know, how, what if I, what if I get every, somebody to say yes to one of those options every single time? Well, eventually I'm going to run out of resources. I can't close every single deal. So I've got to figure out a way to work with other people. And the best way to figure out who those people are is to start connecting with people and, and learning from them and contributing to what they're doing and having them help you on stuff. And so in business, I think it's really, really important to get in with other people that can kind of help you get to where you need to be. So. No, I love that. So true. It's a, it's a people business. Next question. What's your superpower? Probably just being stubborn enough to not give up. (laughs) (laughs) Persistence maybe is, you know, I I hate giving up on anything. So I just, I just don't give up. (laughs) I I share that. And then a resource or a podcast or a book. I know it's, there's a lot out there, but what would you recommend for someone? Boy, I mean, just for me personally, when it comes to real estate, obviously bigger pockets is one. Um, I really enjoy Sunday service uh, that Pace um, uh, Pace Morby and Jamil Damji and Brent Daniels do on Sunday evenings. Uh, I'm not actually able to watch that all the time, but I, I think that that's a great podcast. You have three real powerhouses in the uh, wholesaling, flipping, creative, you know, um, business. And they all kind of come together on that podcast on Sunday nights. And I think Sunday service is a really, really good one for whether you're a beginner or an expert, you're going to get value out of that podcast every single time. Um, And then just like, as far as generally, I like uh, the way I heard it with Mike Rowe. I don't know if you ever heard that one, but Mm -mm. uh, Mike Rowe is the dirty jobs guy. And he has a podcast on um, called the way I heard it. And he just tells really cool, different stories. It's usually pretty short. So those are probably my, my top two favorites is Sunday service and the way I heard it. And then I just like bigger pockets because they got so many different um, guests and, and broad reaching stuff on there, but for sure. Sunday service, every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm really glad I did. I love that. I haven't heard of that. I'm going to check it out. Awesome. Yeah. Also, how, how can people find you and work with you and learn more about PDX REI? Yeah, probably the easiest. Thank you so much for listening. You know, I hope you found it valuable. Please take a minute you know, to hit the subscribe guess, or follow you know, button. It really helps. I don't know call find different feelers out there to, to market the different people. We also people, appreciate five-star reviews. Also, please take a screenshot. The show is brought to you by the Mentor Rental Facebook. We have a great Facebook group that you can join. There's your part of it. You actually can't spoke at our meetups. We do workshops. Meetups, uh, consultations, and just you know, generally speaking, for the Portland area at least, it's a great resource for people who are looking to do real estate or looking to get into real estate. Um, I think it's a great place, and so if you're on there, you'll definitely be able to find me, um, or you know, just reach out uh, on um, my my John Buys Houses phone number is five zero three four three six six five two five. That's kind of my intake number for seller leads. But I know it always connects to me. So, but yeah, PDX REI group is probably the best place. So you can, we're going to, I'm going to be on there all the time. So. (laughs) No, it's, it's, I can attest. It's a really supportive community and it's, it's great. It's definitely worth checking out. Well, thank you so much, John. Um, This has been, this has been fun. I'm sorry we went so long, but I really. No, me too. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found it valuable. Please take a minute to hit the subscribe or follow button. It really helps other people find us and share it with a wider audience. We also appreciate five-star reviews. Also, please take a screenshot and tag us on your favorite social platform. We're at Cedar and Porch. 
The show was brought to you by the Midterm Rental Playbook Course, your blueprint to setting up a successful midterm rental. Learn more at the Midterm Rental Playbook. Dot com link in the show notes.